Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCall, and welcome back to Hedgeye TV for another real conversation with the world's renowned demographer, uh, the one and only Neil Howe. Neil, good to see you. Keith, great to see you again. You know, there's a couple things going on that people probably want to talk about. They want to get <laughs> Neil's opinion. So we're going to get into that. First, though, I wanted to, because we are going to talk uh, about the fourth turning. That is, uh, that is what you authored. And maybe just for people that don't know, uh, we'll give them a, you know, maybe if you give them a quick you know, overview of what that is, and then we'll get into some topics. Well, the, uh, the thesis of the four tur- turning, which we um, laid out in books that came out in 1991, but mo- more notably in 1997, uh, is a theory that uh, history moves through recurring patterns or cycles or rhythms, and, uh, and that, and that uh, four stages, it's kind of like seasons of the year, and that the last season is the winter season, and that's the crisis era, when institutions are um, torn down and rebuilt uh, uh, relatively rapidly, tremendous amount of political engagement going on, and, uh, and that we're in one right now, right? Uh, we have one of these roughly every 80 or 90 years, uh, starting from the 1680s uh, in both the colonies and in, um, well, really throughout Anglo-America. But we've had one, you know, the American Revolution, the Civil War, the New Deal, the Great Depression, and we're back in one. What drives these rhythms is um, generational change. And uh, obviously, a lot of my work has been involved in talking about generations, defining them, uh, understanding their dynamics. And crises aren't the only rhythms uh, that we talk about historically. We also talk about rhythms of awakenings, right? And not reshaping the outer world of economics and politics, reshaping the inner world of culture, values, religion. Uh, These also follow an interesting pattern. They occur roughly halfway in between these great outer world crises. And and all of this is interwoven with a distinct pattern of generational change. I don't know. Is that that's a little summary right yeah, there? That's perfect. Now, now, now you get to get into the fun stuff, which is to put the uh, <laughs> put the Biden Trump uh, debate and and all the political zeitgeist that goes alongside it. You know, in you know, where are we in that history? Well, we're about halfway through. Uh, we think that this started uh, 2008, 2009 with the GFC. Uh, it kind of got its second hit this year, uh, but it's going to go on all the way until the year 2030. You know, maybe a little bit before, a little bit after. So it's a 22-year period, roughly the length of a generation. And uh, we're getting deeper into it. Uh, The interesting thing about this uh, election, and actually this is a trend that started in uh, 2018, is the sudden huge improvement, I should say improvement, but rise in uh, civic participation, namely as measured by voter participation, in 2018, in the by-election, that was the um, the highest voter participation rate in a by-election going back 100 years, all the way until 20, uh, 1914. Wow. Uh, and the, this year, it looks as though this is the National Election Project. They've just calculated it. <clears throat> Think of this, Keith. Since 1972, the uh, share of eligible voters who actually vote has only three times risen, just barely over 60%. Uh, 
Uh, this year, it's going to be something like 66.5%. That's the highest since 1900. That was, the, that was when William McKinley ran for the second time against William Jennings Bryan. Uh, so this, in a way, you'd say is good news. I mean, come on. I mean, how many decades after decade do we complain Americans are apathetic, they're disengaged, you know, they don't care about politics. You know, what's the matter? Well, say what you will about the Trump era. Love him or hate him. This guy has gotten Americans on both sides re-engaged with politics, right? They really care now what's going on. The bad news is kind of a good news, bad news story. Uh, the bad news is the reason they're re-engaged is they think the other side is going to destroy America. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, a lot of it is driven by hatred and fear. I hate to say it. Negative motivations matter in politics. Um, some nine out of 10 voters on both sides believe the other side will do permanent harm to America. Uh, both sides overwhelmingly say that it matters in terms of policy. No more of this complaints about Tweedledum, Tweedledee. I mean, when, when Bush ran against Gore, you remember G.W. Bush ran against Gore in 2000, a huge share of voters said, this doesn't make any difference, right? This, this election doesn't matter. These people, Gore was running as a neoliberal George Bush was running as a compassionate conservative. Do you remember that? And everyone just said, this doesn't matter, right? <laughs> that has completely changed today. So you could say that that's actually a benefit. Voters are being given clear choices today. Um, but one of the costs we see is this growing polarization in America, whereby everyone is increasingly aligned on policies that are diametrically opposed to each other. And you can see this most clearly. Um, this was actually described um, uh, in a book by um, uh, uh, an author named Bishop. This was called The Big Sort. It came out about 10 years ago. But he described how increasingly people are relocating with uh, voters that think the same way. Wow. So one, one fascinating thing is if you look at landslide counties, that is to say counties in which one, uh, uh, the the winning candidate beats the other candidate by, by at least 20 percentage points. That number is growing and growing and growing. Think of this, Keith. Back when Bill Clinton uh, ran against uh, George Bush Sr., that was 1992, uh, only 38% of America's counties were landslide counties. In 2016, when Hillary Clinton ran against Trump, 60% of America's counties were landslide. And we think that in this current election, it probably is going to be up at around 65%. And one interesting thing you see, too, is happening is that the, uh, the, the progressive side, the Democratic side, is getting bigger and bigger minorities on a smaller and bigger and bigger majorities on a smaller and smaller number of U.S. counties. Mm. So most counties, the majority is going for Republicans. I, so I have, I have one good comparison to you. You'll enjoy this. Uh, when Bill Clinton won in 1992, uh, he was a Democrat, and he got almost 50% of America's counties. Now, his popular majority was about 6%. It wasn't that much larger than we expect Biden's to be. We think Biden is going to come in at around 4.5% uh, popular margin. So it was around 6, 6.5%. He got almost half of America's counties. He got something like 1,500 counties in, you know, 3,100. Hillary Clinton, who won by two percentage points of the popular vote in 2016, 
she got only 490 counties, 490 out of 3,100. And we think that this year, even though Biden's going to get back to like 4.5%, he'll only have about 550 American counties. Yeah, amazing. Huge, huge majorities in those counties. Wow. But this is the problem. I mean, this is the danger of what America faces right now. Now that I'm assuming you're not counting the county of Canada, but uh, you know it is it is amazing because I have Connecticut, Canada, you know, a little alliteration for you there, and it is exactly the same thing. I mean, they all hate Trump. Uh, to 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 drive around with a couple of Trump flags with a with an S with like a big truck or something like that would look a little weird in Connecticut, and that's why the the, the Trumpsters did it. But again, this um I guess I guess this engagement geographically that you're talking about. Does that, does that spark or does that provide a perpetual catalyst, more fire, more fuel to the fire uh, into this fourth turning as it goes to, towards the year 2030 or not? Well, it does. And, and, you know, one of the problems when you have two parties that are both competitive, you know, they're both near 50%. They both have a chance of regaining power. And there are a number of great books on the history of this throughout American history, you know, going back to the founders. But it turns out that these can be very unstable periods, meaning that if each party is mostly focused on gaining power, it's actually going to invite polarization because it wants to define its brand. It wants anything to give it an edge. And, you know, its first its first concern is getting power. Now, what typically happens is, is that in, in, in this particularly happens in a fourth turning, one party achieves dominance, often suddenly. Right and you have a big election. Uh, 1932 followed by 1936 would be a great you know, example of that, where suddenly it's no longer competitive anymore. And then the minority party actually has a different incentive. It still needs to show results for its voters, right? But it no longer is competitive, so it's no longer trying, it's, it's rather sort of compliant, obsequious. It kind of goes along, it wants to do deals with the majority party so it can bring home the bacon to its voters. You saw that, you know, Bob Michael, uh, so we don't remember him today, but he was um, uh, uh, back in the 1980s and he, he always used to say, uh, well, you know, this is what you expect of a, of a minority party. You know, it, 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 it goes along to get along, but of course that damages its chances for ever regaining uh, power, right? In other words, by, by, by always deferring to the majority party, you sort of give up your chance to reclaim. So it's kind of an all or nothing struggle. Um, I think eventually one party is gonna gain uh, big dominance. Sometimes it's hard to know which party that's gonna be. Um, sometimes we forget that before FDR won in 1932, uh, Herbert Hoover won in 1928 with one of the largest popular margins in American history. Um, so it can swing radically uh, one way or the other, depending on which party is successful at getting the coalition. Um, and, and obviously you need to do two things. You need to shore up your base. You know, you need to reinforce your brand to your base. On the other hand, you have to be successful at reaching out to other constituencies of putting together a coalition, which might involve uh, parties, uh, you know, groups not like you. I think the the republicans are doing better at firing up their base and and democrats are doing better at reaching out for a coalition the, mm. the fdr did this famously right i mean he had that he had the the southern democrats on board which gave him that huge majority in congress but of course in return he had to leave jim crow and civil rights alone right he couldn't even sign a he couldn't even support an anti-lynching law which came up 
in in the very late 1930s, uh, and that was the that was the bargain. And FDR said, "We have huge things we want to do to rebuild our country. Uh, we're facing a crisis. We need to make deals." Yeah, and and so ultimately, uh, they were very successful at actually arranging that co- kind of coalition. Uh, the Republicans weren't, and the Republicans went into kind of a permanent congressional majority for for many decades. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, like uh, I've been citing this book called Rainbow's End uh, recently, which leads you up to the crash of 1929, of course. So it's very interesting that you make that point about Hoover. And and who would have thought, you know, in 1928, 1929, when everyone was feeling, you know, so sure that that was the new era or that was going to be the future. I know. That that was the beginning of the absolute end. I mean, you know, so when you put that in context of today, you get a lot of uh, obviously, a lot of people with blue flags that are feeling much better, and a lot of people with red flags that are pissed off. Um, you know, how, do you need to put it into in a square, you know, a square into a round hole, or like, what do you need to do from the lessons of the prior turn, um, and how how should people use that, that that guide of history? Well, again, I think uh, obviously uh, there are generational reasons to be very concerned if you're a Republican, namely that we do see a great deal of generational continuity. The, uh, the, in other words, who you vote for and who you bond with in your, uh, in your early 20s, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s, when you first start to vote, uh, definitely carries with you, uh, mm-hmm. right? So if you came of age as a young adult in the, uh, in the early to mid-1930s, you're a lifelong Democrat, right? I mean, even in the great society, you're still, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're still worshiping FDR. You're, you know, the, you're remembering his, him as an icon, and so you're always supporting unions. You're always supporting a lot of this stuff, uh, and 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 similarly for Xers uh, who were born in the early '60s, came of age with Reagan. Uh, they continue to vote more uh, Republican than people their age bracket uh, mm-hmm. even today. So, so this is the. Um, um, this is the problem you deal with if you're a Republican, and I would say Republicans, I think, have to make a have to think outside the box at this point. They really have to think, how can we get our message to expand our coalition? Uh, they need a coalition. They can't just keep doubling down on people who who's you know, sort of reinforcing their their core base. Uh, that's only going to work so far. Uh, you know, it's only going to take them so far, and it's unlikely to be successful. Well, with that, I mean, does it does it have to be a certain way? Does the turn have to be a turn in the political party? In other words, does the blue flag carry as far as it can into the very end? Like literally, I mean, we have eight or nine years left on your timeline here. So, yeah. you know, trying to think yeah. that through in terms of what happens well, next. Typically, if you're going to have if 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 public policies and uh, is going to be changed and you're going to make, you know, kind of sweeping reforms and you're kind of reshape institutions, uh, one party is going to have to take charge, right? Yep. That was easy, easy for Lincoln during the during the Civil War. All the Democrats just left; <laughs> they seceded. So you know, suddenly the <laughs> the Republicans ran everything, right? That was easy. Uh, and and obviously during the New Deal, and you saw the same thing through the American Revolution. One party achieves dominance, and and it reshapes things. Uh, and then of course you have different generational waves within that. Uh, I think a lot of the power for uh, uh, building up as opposed to tearing down uh, comes from the the rising adult generation, which is this case in the millennials. And back in the 1930s, it was the GI generation. 
It's interesting. And how do we start to put, um, and I guess maybe some, you know, just to get people up to speed on on, on the gray, you know, what, what do you call him, the gray beard or the gray person at this at this stage? <laughs> the gray champion. The gray champion. Yeah. Who? The yeah. gray champion. And and I think everybody would have a, a pretty good guess on on who they think that that was and who the next one would be. And Kamala Harris. Right. Well, you know, gray champions are um, are are made. They're not born. Uh, and very often these are people, they're always uh, representing an older generation. They never belong to, uh, you know, the generation of young adults. So uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was an example of a great champion for the GI generation. It's amazing how many of them, how many of the great liberals that came out of that uh, generation, including, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Kennedy and, and, and LBJ, uh, just worshipped him, you know, mm -hmm. as, as young adults. Um, uh, for the Civil War, it was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he was the, the older leader who was very deft at compromising and coalition building. A lot of people don't understand Lincoln. Uh, he, was, uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he was very late you know, to actually endorse you know, emancipation and so on. He was very canny about it. He wanted all those border states you know, in, in his hands first, right? Before really prosecuting the war, he was he was very good, um, and and for you know many candidates probably for the American Revolution, an obvious one that comes to mind who was just universally venerated even during his lifetime uh, was George Washington. But these are these are definitely older leaders. They represent uh, either the nomad or the prophet archetype, and they are. They are made, they're not born, meaning these people are not necessarily people that you would have bet on before the crisis. Uh, they simply adapt and seize the opportunity. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was an extremely unlikely person. I mean, no one, you know, just given his lowly origins and his gawkiness and his awkwardness and the almost flukish way in which he was elected in a four-way election in, in 1860, the fact that he got into power at all, but he used his opportunities masterfully. FDR the same way. FDR very much unlike his, um, you know, his third uncle uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, was not particularly um, uh, uh, gifted. Uh, no one ever thought it. You know, everyone thought Teddy Roosevelt was, you know, just this incredible dynamo. I mean, he was he was just an amazing person, even as a young adult. Uh, you know, writing books, uh, uh, just 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 an incredible and charismatic per person. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not, and there was a lot of misgivings uh, even in 1932, despite the fact that how poorly uh, Al Smith and the Democrats performed in 1928, uh, a lot of misgivings about him taking uh, the the, uh, the nomination. And he, he, again, he started slowly. He actually started as a moderate. He ran on a, on a as you know, platform of balancing the budget. It was, it was actually very cautious. But he gradually was able to work the system very deftly, particularly in the realm of, of building coalitions. Never wanted to get too far ahead of the of the public. I think he was very good at that, particularly with regard to entry into World War II. I mean, that was masterful because I think he, with the oil embargo against Japan, I think he, he knew where this was leading. I mean, it could only lead one place, right? There's no way Japan could survive with this uh, uh, stranglehold on its source of energy. But he sort of, you know, I'm, I'm not responsible for this. And then, of course, the attack. Oh, we're outraged, right? Uh, I, I think it was definitely done. And he ba basically maneuvered public opinion to where he wanted. 
uh, and he was he was, in the end, uh, epically successful. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and on the on the question of Kamala Harris, or when we start to think about um, females in history, I mean, I, obviously, I can think of one in the UK in particular. Well, I think you know she's she's a she's a woman to watch. Uh, she definitely has uh, charisma. You know, some would say an attitude. Uh, she can kind of take control of a room. I think. Uh, I think that's clear. Uh, I think she displayed a little <laughs> bit of that in in her debate against uh, uh, Mike Pence, right? Uh, and and again, we have to wait and see. Uh, the 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 persona will appear in the context of events. Will they take advantage of the events? Without the events, you can't really achieve that. Um, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton used to complain, you know, when he left the presidency, he wished there had been a crisis. You know, he could have been such a great president. <laughs> and, and well, he was a reason. He was reasonably popular president. Uh, you know, he sort of rode the tides of of the 1990s, but nothing really happened in the 1990s, and nothing was going to happen, right? I mean, he basically sort of went along with, um, you know, big government doesn't have to be that powerful. We're going to balance the budget. We're going to get rid of welfare, as you know. We're going to kind of ride the wave of sort of, you know, the, this prosperity and, and the tech revolution. And he was never really able, to, he didn't have the opportunity to, to become what he would consider a great leader. So he was always, he was a little bit frustrated there. But uh, I, I think the same way as you could say uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was, um, he 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 wanted to do great things. It just wasn't, you know, the moment wasn't right for him. Yeah, I, I think that that that's something. At least when I think about markets, I think about a lot. It it has nothing to do with like some government person trying to do something. It it happens at a particular time when a certain move particularly matters. I mean, it's just there's an opportunity, it, and it, you it, seize it. It's a combination of opportunity and being able to seize it deftly, wisely, right. uh, practically. I think like people are quite attracted to your framework, you know, obviously on generations. But once you go generations and genders and we start to, you know, people start to say, wow, this really, you know, he says something's turning. That that sounds like or it looks like it's turning. And that's yeah. um, I think that that's something that, it, you know, I know you tighten it up. But also on the institutional point, I just want to make sure I got this question to you because you wrote about it today. You know, this distrust and replacing of institutions, which is, you know, polling. Like people look at, they get upset about Trump, but Trump's upset about something that probably a lot of Americans are upset about if they could have a better polling system or, hey, some, act- some actual polls that were accurate, you know, they'd probably take that. Yeah, the, the accuracy of the polls is a really interesting question. Um, I mean, it turns out that the national uh, polls uh, were obviously somewhat overestimating for the Democrats, but within the margin of error. Uh, going into election eve, uh, Biden was favored by 7.2 percentage points. Uh, we expect uh, that Biden will get about 4.5 margin. And by the way, if you don't believe me, if you don't think he's going to reach it, uh, <laughs> you can go and predict it and make money. So I'm just saying, you know, uh, there's a market actually for that. Yeah. You can bet on the margin. And right now it's about 50-50, actually slightly favoring over 4.5%. But here's my point. If he comes in at 4.5, that's going to be within three percentage points of 7.2. That's within the margin of error. And by the way, um, uh, that's that's a pretty large uh, margin. Uh, that is the largest margin since Obama in 2008. And going back before then, it's the largest since 1996, uh, you know, Bill Clinton over Bob Dole. 
Uh, so it's a reasonably large margin. It, interestingly, Keith, it's the largest margin for someone running against an incumbent since Ronald Reagan in 1980, right? Mm. Popular margin. Uh, of course, Reagan's was bigger, something like, you know, it was over 9%. But so so I don't think that one was off. Now, the 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 um, the states, uh, the, the uh, battleground states kind of went either way, but they generally came in kind of how we were calling them. Uh, I think where they really got it wrong, systematically wrong, and not within the margin of error, was the, all the down ticket uh, decisions. Uh, there was a big fail for the Democrats. Uh, everyone thought that they were more likely than not to retake the Senate. Uh, they've only gained the net one seat. They have two obviously up for grabs in Florida. They're going to be hard pressed to even take one of the, uh, excuse me, in Georgia. Uh, this is the um, sort of the, you know, the, the second stage of the jungle primary. And then, and then the, one, the regular election that's going to be, this is both on January 5th. So that's in Georgia. They'll be lucky to take even one of those. So they're almost surely not going to take back the Senate. Uh, and they a big fail in the House, right? Uh, they they actually have lost at least so far a net five seats. I think three flipped in, in favor of the of the um, Democrats, eight flipped in favor of the Republicans, uh, and they haven't done very well in the state and local you know state elections either, uh, which is actually a shame for them because. Next year will be all the redistricting, right? The 2020 census is going to come out. So that's an all-important year to have you winning the state legislatures. Uh, they didn't do as well as they liked. Um, what went wrong? Uh, and I, I recently, just this morning, actually, did a big, long piece on that. And we go through the various reasons. Uh, one of them, I think, is obviously the in-person campaigning by Trump. Uh, he was, um, I mean, Democrats said it was foolish. Uh, but Trump partisans thought it was, um, you know, pretty gutsy, pretty brave. And the the Trump team went out house to house, even personally, even in the midst of the pandemic. And and there's no question that in person beats online, Keith, every time. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, you get out and you start mixing with the folks. It, it definitely makes a difference. And Trump was a dynamo in the last few days uh, before the election. I think the second one was... Um, the Biden and the, the head team did not sufficiently control what I would call their social and cultural left. Um, and I'm talking about stuff like, you know, defund the police and sort of the, the, the spirit of open borders, uh, systemic racism, a lot of this stuff. And, and as a result, uh, a lot of moderates uh, running in the House have been complaining. I mean, you know, just go on the New York Times, Washington Post, you can see these people complaining now that the election's over, I mean, they're speaking their mind about this stuff. What, get rid of fracking, you know, in Pennsylvania? Are you joking? And, and you know, that's never going to happen anyway. So <laughs> why are you doing it? You're just losing me my district, right? So these are, in other words, um, uh, uh, ideological signpost issues, which are not terribly practical, which galvanize your really core base, but lose you all your marginal districts, right? And so there's a, there's going to be tremendous tension, I think, within the Democratic Party over this, uh, and particularly the whole issue of race and crime. We know that that was hugely motivating uh, for voters this year. Um, I think for 67% of voters, they said that was a major issue. For about 20%, it was the most important issue. There was switching either way, but I think most of them was, you know, moderate, moderate uh, 
moderate Democrats switching and voting Republican rather than the other way around. Mm. Um, so this is something that the Democrats will have to deal with. There's a great deal more, because they are more of a co coalitional party, there's a great deal of more tension. There's also a great deal of more age tension, right? They've got a very activated uh, a millennial cadre, and they, they've got this, you know, pretty solid, you know, early wave boomer silent generation uh, cadre, particularly of leaders. So anyway, that's going to be uh, interesting to watch. And finally, the whole issue of the shy Trump voter. Remember, we, we've talked about that many times. Um, I think that did show up a little bit. Uh, it's, it's very interesting if you, uh, one person, uh, this is a big pollster at USC, actually asked a question. If you ask people, who are all my friends going to vote for? You get a more accurate poll than asking, who are you going to vote for? Right. And, you know, if you would ask that question, if you, you know, most of these polls, you say, who, are, who am I going to vote for? 10% for Biden. If you would ask, who are my, all my friends and the people I know going to vote for? It would have been more, <laughs> much more like five or six for Biden, which is much more close to the act. Right. In other words, deflect it. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do, but let me just talk about, you know, the people around me. Right. Um, and interestingly, though, I think where we've gotten the, the shy Trump voter wrong is that we have laid uh, too much emphasis on Trump. Actually, I think it's just a shy Republican voter phenomenon. And, and interestingly enough, in the data that I'm looking at, it actually, uh, the shyness goes up by income and education level. In other words, higher income, highly educated Republicans, particularly moderates, are the most shy about talking about, right? They're the most fearful of, you know, political discussion impacts on their job, their career, you know, their friends. And, and this is not the image we get. In other words, these are not necessarily the Trump voters. Uh, these would be more like the people voting for Susan Collins in Maine. Mm. And by the way, we had an epic fail on that, right? I mean, we, we underestimated her vote by more than 10 percentage points. A moderate, totally respectable, right? <laughs> been in the Senate for God knows how long, right? Well, she won. Yeah. Uh, that was not expected. And so I think that's an issue as well. Well, I, all these things, I mean, they're so interwoven, and that's why so many people are so interested in, again, your framework. Uh, but I'm trying to get to the, yeah, I don't know how the hell you get to the to the end of the fourth turning, and, and I, I'm certainly uh, excited for you to give us, yeah, if you want to see, you know, winter is coming, they get it, it's the four, it sounds bad, things are bad, it looked really bad, but now you get a lot of people that think it's really good and other people that think it's really bad, and there, there's a brokenness to the institutions, like to me, yeah. And, and I, it's interesting. I mean, I'm my own, obviously, my own piece of work here. And I, I'm not Republican or Democrat. But I just tweet something really simple. Like, you guys are all crazy. If you're all left and you're all right and you have to push either side, for a math guy, that just doesn't compute. And I get so much feedback on that, Neil. I know I'm a Gen X guy. I got my own problems. You know, but to me, I'm speaking to the solution to the brokenness, which is partisanship. And that, to me, I'm wondering if I'm right or if I'm wrong, or if it's just going to continue to be partisan and, and, and you can't really speak that way out in public unless you're as dumb enough as I am to do it. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think actually when, when I talk to people and, you know, talk to clients and so on, um, there is widespread acknowledgement that large institutions in America are broken, and simply in their, in their effectiveness and their cost. I mean, a good example is higher education, broken. Uh, our healthcare system, you know, that's what, 18.7% uh, of GDP, completely broken. I mean, if we, if we measured, 
you know, productivity in terms of better health against rising costs, that's like negative productivity growth, right, over the past 30 years. Yeah. But no one questions it. Everyone is, allows the providers to spend, um, you know, their people's money, right? And that's fine. And, you know, we can't seem to get our hands on it, right? Um, I think any trust in America is broken. Um, I think uh, regulation of uh, social media is is broken. And I think it's very hard for two relatively individualist generations, uh, namely Gen Xers and boomers, to kind of back away from their lifelong preoccupation from liberating us, you know, uh, from from government, from the culture, from tradition, and letting everyone go their own way to come to grips with what are essentially systemic institutional failures. We see that very strongly, by the way. I think that's why there was such um, uh, incredible pessimism about America's response to COVID-19, right? Uh, which COVID-19, I think, exposed everything dysfunctional uh, about <laughs> our culture, uh, libertarian culture, our political system, our you know federal political system where there's no national authority, no. And, uh, uh, and fascinating, Keith, is that older generations were the ones mainly supporting, you know, protect my rights. I don't have to go outside without a mask. You know, these are the ones most in danger. These are the ones most dying. And they're least likely to have a job that, that, that requires their presence, right? So they would suffer least and benefit more by actually an strict enforcement policy that could get this under control. Millennials who are least likely to die, most likely to be unemployed, you know, in a, in a shutdown, are most in favor of a systematic nationally led policy. And this inversion of age bracket responses to COVID has fascinated me. And I see it in a lot of other areas of American life where you see the younger generation actually more in favor of something, you know, with authority, the systemic, that's top down, that actually takes all the you, what you've learned around the world and actually applies it thoroughly uh, for a system-wide solution. Yo, that, 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 that's like, um, that's, that's what I mean. You know, we have, if the thing, if we're going, winter is coming and the bad shit's gonna happen, you know? I mean, why is it that so many people that, that's the millennial generation asking for that. My generation and the generation older than I, they think that the answer to all this is the Fed, government spending, more government. The government's here. Like, I mean, this is, to me, this is bananas. Like, it makes you kind of, I guess it brings you back to the, at least brings me back to the Benjamin Franklin saying, like, how much liberty are we willing to give up to give us some short-term financial security? And to me, okay, that's, like, a lot of that's in the stock market, for example, is one way where you could see kind of, wow, we fixed it. We fixed it using the broken institutions. Well, as I recall back in the late 60s, um it was boomers who insisted, if it feels good, do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there you've got the Fed policy. There you got stimulus, right? Let's, yeah. Uh, don't think about tomorrow. Uh, I remember that from the late 60s as well. So, you know, that's where we are today. These people are now in charge. Yeah. And uh, so where is this going to come out? You know, what are we looking at? What are some of the long-term shifts we're going to see? You've talked about one of them, Keith, in uh, a lot of your recent shows, and that's inflation pressure. Um, you know, as, as uh, modern monetary theory, I think, becomes de facto uh, uh, accepted uh, by most of, the, most of the world's advanced economies, 
you know, if real rates of interest are negative, why you'd just be stupid not to just, just borrow as much as you want, just give it to everyone who needs it, right? I mean, that would just be perverse, right? So we're going to engage in this. And I think that uh, right now I would not want to be, uh, at least on a, uh, on a systematic or long-term basis, heavily invested in nominal assets right now, right? I mean, that would just be my you know, overall feeling about that because I think uh, the inflation that comes out of money and monetary theory, first of all, you know, the Fed guarantees it's not going to happen and they're going to keep interest rates low until, I don't know, for the next 24 months. But of course, once the Fed starts having to chase inflation expectations upward, that's when you're going to get the huge <laughs> bond crash, right? Yeah. And and so you you've got to you've got to prepare for that. I think, uh, I I, uh, and and it's going to be regarded if inflation does happen, it won't even re be regarded as a bug. It'll be a feature, because that way we take wealth away from the creditors, give it all to the debtors. You know, we tip our economy away from the old, give it a little bit of advantage to the young. Uh, so I think in many ways, this is sort of a win-win. I think policy always moves in the default direction of where there seems to be a lot more benefits than penalties. I think we are going to move that way. Um, I think in foreign policy, we're going to move toward more engagement abroad. I mean, that's Biden's, you know, leitmotif, right? We're going to be closer to our allies. We're going to, we're going to engage. We're going to re-solidify our alliances. We're going to, well, I think that they're, there are issues that are going to come out of that. Um, you know, increasing share of Americans uh, 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 think that we have interest at stake uh, in, you know, in the, it, you know, in the Western Pacific. And I think those are going to come out as well. I think that's kind of the foreign policy danger of uh, uh, which is which might raise rapidly to the fore in 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 the fourth turning. Uh, we've seen it in every other fourth turning. And by the way, the willingness of Americans to actually engage in conflict in defense of alliances over the past four or five years has been rising. I mean, I watch these opinion polls uh, strongly. Interestingly, on many of these flashpoints, Democrats are more willing uh, to actually engage in conflict now than Republicans. This is a complete turnaround, right? Mm -hmm. So the Republicans are increasingly becoming the, the party of isolationists. Uh, and the Democrats are becoming the party of a global engagement. And if necessary, yeah, we're going to, you know, enforce our will. Uh, this, again, reminds you a lot, does it not, of the 1930s. I think another issue we're going to see, and I know that a lot has been written on it, Keith, uh, is secession or nullification. Um, I think it's fair to say uh, that many people who voted for Trump, uh, many people uh, who live in the red zone, um, will not accept this presidency. I mean, he's sort of illegitimate. They'll probably go along with it, so long as there's no big issue that rubs them the wrong way. But I think this could be very interesting if you have some sort of tax policy, could be income tax, corporation tax, inheritance tax, could be a regulatory ruling. I don't know, either on energy uh, or, or something involving you know the culture, right? And you could suddenly have a movement of governors, uh, of people saying, you know, we're just not going to enforce that. And mm -hmm. this used to be called nullification. It's come up repeatedly in American history. It actually, you know, Jefferson and Madison actually first raised it with the Alien and Sedition Acts. This goes way back in the late 1790s. And then, of course, you know, 
Calhoun raised it with regard to Southern state rights. But anyway, it's repeatedly been invoked. And every time it's invoked, it always raises that specter. Well, you gonna let that stand? <laughs> or are you gonna go in and challenge it? Can you really let that stand? If, if a governor just says, no, you know that particular rule, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna pay those tax revenue. Well, that kind of dares the blue zone, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And, a, and a blue zone that feels vulnerable might say, no, no, yeah, we're, we're gonna enforce it. We can't back down on this one. Of course, that gives you your, you know, that gives you your, your, your another crisis scenario. I think there are a lot of places this could go, Keith, and and um, you kind of keep it's sort of like three-dimensional chess. You kind of keep kind of keep all of those things happening, right? All of those eventualities, possibly even playing out uh, at the same time. Yeah, and then it all breaks. You know, that's what people want. Like the, this to me, and, and you know, because we're at least I think in my own little mind, you know, sometimes tries to get this to what party wins. The whole bloody thing fails is basically what the fourth turning is institutionally. And to me, like if you, and here's a, and by the way, if you have questions, please ask them. Some of the questions, the one that just moved to number one in the queue, literally nails this straight on the head. I mean, and and I agree with it in terms of this word socialism, because socialism has been a bipartisan policy. Let's be very clear on that. From a market perspective, absolutely. Joining the Treasury with the Fed and spending trillions at a time and debating whether or not it should be an extra half a trillion, that's socialism. I mean, it's not, there's no, there's no conservatism to that. And, and this question uh, from Alex is, is, you've said that socialism is in part the millennial, the millennial mindset. Will this be something that fails in the long term? Could that be the fourth turning? Everything fails in the long term. <laughs> I mean, everything fails in the long term, because what happens is, even if it works, you need to adjust it, right? The the society will enter a new mood, a new phase, people will want different things, you'll have a problem of excess, you'll overshoot. Uh, But I do say that in fourth turnings, government always grows stronger. And I mean much stronger. That's just a Into it, into it or coming, I thought coming out of it, the government gets eviscerated. No? Well, no, coming out of it, it remains strong through the what we call the first turning, right? But it no longer is in crisis. It just very strong institutions. The, the generation that, that fought the crisis built all these strong institutions, and then they're just beginning to enter midlife, right, and taking over leadership of them. So that would be, for instance, the American high, right? The late four, the, the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John yep. Kennedy institutions very strong i mean unions big corporations when when uh, kennedy wanted to thought that the steel makers were raising their prices too much he just got on the phone right yeah hey take those take those prices down and, and so the gis had this very top-down mentality when it came to running the economy we were a very engaged people most people were all civically engaged There was a tremendous optimism and trust in America back then. And of course, big institutions thrived off that and they used it. We made huge strides uh, in the 1950s, uh, little acknowledged today, not just in terms of infrastructure, uh, you know, America vaccines, uh, you know, all the research that led to everything from the moon launch to transistors, but also in things like civil rights. Uh, and, uh, you know, tremendous migration of African-Americans out of the South, for example. We, we had huge equalizing trends in income and wealth uh, in the late 40s, 1950s, throughout most of the 1960s even. 
well, that came to an end, right? <laughs> we entered our next turning. That was the second turning. That's an awakening. And, you know, that's kind of when, you know, uh, hell breaks loose and all those trends begin to turn a different direction. That becomes a turning away from trust, obviously, and a turning toward individualism. Uh, and, and awakenings have an interesting, you know, unity of their own, if you, if you go. And, and the, 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 the rising generation during an awakening is what we call a prophet archetype. Most recently, it was boomers. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had, you know, earlier generations like that, the missionary generation born just after the Civil War, the transcendental generation born just after the American Revolution. Uh, this was the generation of, um, of Jefferson Davis and uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln and, and Emerson and Thoreau and all those young adults who founded, you know, communes and, and feminist clubs all over America. I mean, they were incredibly powerful generation in the culture. Uh, just as the prophet archetype always is. Hmm. All right, uh, that's a that's a jammed uh, <laughs> jammed answer to a loaded question. Uh, here's here's another one. Is, is the fourth turning a global event, or will this one be the first one that's global? Uh, that's an excellent question, and uh, actually, in a in a book I'm doing right now, but I should mention that by the way. <laughs> I was gonna ask you, but uh, now you're gonna say it. Just say it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I got a book coming up, but that's actually one thing we're going to talk a lot more about. A lot of these trends we see today are global, meaning there's a lot of coincidence today between uh, generational trends worldwide. Uh, and we've seen this ever since the Great Depression and World War II, where we saw a big civic generation come of age, uh, you know, whether it was the Long March generation in China, the Independence generation in India, obviously everyone who fought in World War II. Um, and then since then, we've seen very similar archetypes. They may be separated a little bit in terms of age and birth years, but we saw a war child generation coming out of the Depression in World War II. We definitely saw a global boomer generation making itself known in, in 1968, you know, whether it's in uh, uh, Germany or, or Paris. Uh, and and uh, we had a, even a global Generation X, you know, very mm -hmm. drawn to urban life, markets, uh, hip hop. Uh, which made itself known in, in the 1990s. You know, the Germans called this the Berlin generation for obvious reasons with reunification. And now we're seeing evidence of a global millennial generation. I'll tell you something very interesting. Um, there's some fascinating work now done by Roberta Fawa, who's in charge of the uh, Cambridge Center for, for Democracy, as well as Yasha Monk, who works at Johns Hopkins. And they've been pointing out that faith in democracy, trust in democracy, confidence in democracy is dropping in all of these areas of the world, but it's dropping most rapidly among young adults. That is to say, global millennials. Mm -hmm. uh, they are disproportionately drawn to populism of the right and left, and they're disproportionately happier whenever populism wins. Um, and this is actually news to a lot of people who think that millennials just want, you know, very sort of moderate uh, antiseptic technocrats. Uh, they. <laughs> They, they don't. Um, and, and so you see this in Southern Europe. You see it, I think, most remarkably in, in, in Southern Asia, whether you're looking at India, Narendra Modi, or Burma, or, you know, obviously China, where you see an increasing number of the rising generation want to join the Communist Party uh, and revering, you know, Uncle Xi. You see it, uh, Abe Shinzo. You see it in the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. This is a global movement. We see it now, in, and obviously in Latin America, Keith, we've We've talked a lot about, you know, AMLO and, and, and uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro, I think, 
wants to do everything that Trump ever did. He even got coronavirus, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, you know, boy. They're imitating everything that each other does. Uh, and, and so this is global now, right? These trends are global. And people take pay too much attention to right versus left. Actually, I think that's actually less operative. The point is, it's not liberal particularly, and it's not procedurally democratic. This is a generation that wants to galvanize, mobilize, and make big changes in a system that they believe isn't working for their future. This is, um, yeah, and this, I think this lends itself to this next question, which uh, from Karen, it's, she calls it a multifaceted question because it is, you know, and, and it's using really COVID as the catalyst. Like COVID was our first global, you know, of the modern era, obviously pandemic, uh, but crisis, you know, legitimate crisis, some kind of a, I've heard a lot of our institutional clients have often, because they're constantly trying to paint what's happening in the market as, as that's going to be the next three to five years. We just came out of, you know, World War II. So did you see what stocks did after that? But that's not the question. I'm just <laughs> ranting a bit. Uh, this yeah. is, do you think COVID and the fallout is, is the actual crisis? Or do you think there are more events yet to come that we don't know uh, that will spur an even more severe crisis globally? Well, what typically happens is crisis leads to crisis. So in other words, if crisis accentuates the dysfunction, you increase the likelihood of a next crisis. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and typically I'm a fractal guy, man. That's how it goes. It's like, it's not like you got similar you know, sets. They cause each other to happen. You know, right. And, and it, and I'm it not some linear guy. I get it. And it's growing <laughs> rapidity. It's kind of like a chain reaction. And what happens is, is that all these individual crises gradually combine into one single huge battle or contest, and you have to win that one, right? And then when that gets solved, all the other questions get solved. I mean, a great example, Keith, is, is World War II eventually, which is an enormous global war. But the solution of World War II, you notice, involved everything from the United Nations, to the World Bank, to the IMF, to Bretton Woods. It was going to solve all of the problems of the 1930s, you know, not just fascism, but uh, uh, predatory trade policies. And it was going to solve all of our monetary issues. It was going to solve, you know, global labor problem. In other words, everything what came down to this one incredible um, uh, battle that had to be won. And that increasing focusing of energy as fourth turnings go on from a lot of disparate causes is, is very typical. I, uh, again, go back through other crises and, and you see a similar dynamic. Well, this is this is what gets in. We're getting closer to out of time here, but at least I'm getting to kind of the, the wood here. Uh, at least I think I'm getting down to the wood, which is, you know, Trumpism. And a lot of people over the years have, you know, to your point, you've made this point, and that's, that's why I, I believe this to be true. People don't understand that it's not about Trump. It's about it's something much larger than Trump. So it's indefinitely going to be called Trumpism. Does it have to be Trumpism? Or what is the, here's a question from Sergey. what is the likely course of, of, of Trumpism and its future? And can it be something else that it always was? Well, this is going to be, I think, more interesting. Uh, you have two very interesting things happening now in politics within each party, right? So we've already talked a little bit about the tensions within the Democratic Party between, you know, a very woke, you know, and generally younger left and a and a more moderate center, right? Which is, which is, which is actually a larger spread in the Democratic Party being more of a coalitional party uh, than it is than it is with Trump. I think. 
in the Republicans right now. I think the issue for Trump is that they have two sets of uh, leaders, right? I mean, on the one hand, they've got, uh, you know, Marco Rubio and Nikki Haley and, and you know, a bunch of people you could say, you know, uh, uh, who are going to kind of be this more uh, moderate, maybe kind of, I don't know, Tory socialist or something party, which is going to be, you know, try to make a lot more inroads into moderate Democrats, right? It's clear what their strategy would be. In other words, we can retain Trump, but we can go and actually get that coalition, which the Biden coalition can't get. That's their strategy. And on the other hand, you're going to have a younger group of people who ex will exactly go out. This is the, the Tom Cottons and the Ted Cruz's and maybe, uh, you know, Josh Hawley and a number of these uh, senators. And they're going to go out and they're going to try to take the mantle of the core Trump and amp it up, right? And and I think they will be fairly successful. I actually don't think that Trump will be a viable, uh, that Trump himself uh, will remain a viable candidate. And the reason is, is because if you look at people, if you poll even in Trump land, uh, you know, even though they love his cause, uh, they're often very frustrated by who he is, right? I think uh, even even the most devoted Trump fans could say, you know, we could have had a better, you know, exponent of this, you know, a better representative of this philosophy, right? Uh, and in fact, I think, in, in fact, I think even from Trump's own point of view, he made just so many ridiculous mistakes. I mean, for instance, with COVID, that was his opportunity to sort of, right, become the authoritative leader that America would have wanted. Instead, he just completely whiffed and said, I'm not responsible. All these state governors are, I mean, even for, even if you totally believed in, in Trump and everything about what that means, I just think that was a complete whiff. And on, on the stimulus, why didn't he do one better than, than uh, the House? Why didn't he say, I'm in favor of a $4 trillion bailout, <laughs> and I'm going to call it the Trump bail. I mean, he would have really back, but he had, he would have had to have done that, you know, way back in July. He couldn't do that two weeks before the election, right? Uh, but anyway, he just, I thought he just, he wasn't even tactically very good. That was my real complaint about Trump. He had a lot of opportunities to actually use events productively, and he, and he just missed. I don't think he saw it. So the future of Trumpism is going to be whatever that guy is going to be. He's going to probably be his own media company, by the way. He's going to be competing with this oh, conversation. Oh, yeah, he'll be out there. Time. He'll be on the radios. He'll be, he'll be certainly a big TV star, and, and a lot of people will watch him. But uh, I think as a viable political candidate, no. I think the, the, the nightmare for Republicans, of course, is if, if like a little bit like Teddy Roosevelt, right, in, uh, in, 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 in uh, 19... Uh, uh, in 1912, sort of running as another candidate and completely splitting the you know the red zone vote, right? And that would be a disaster. I mean, that would actually be a wonderful opportunity for true dominance by by the Democrats. And and we've had examples of that. I give you again the example of the Civil War. The Republicans would not have won that massive victory had not the Whigs completely split. In the southern and and uh, you know northern uh, it, it had that the Democrats split between northern and southern uh, halves, and uh, and then and then you know there was chaos, complete fragmentation of the other side, uh, particularly over the issue of slavery, and that that was an opportunity, and uh, the Republican Party and Abraham Lincoln made use of it, and as a result they basically, you know, ran the country for the next seventy years. Mm -hmm.
Well, I mean, people, uh, maybe this is, uh, this is definitely my last question on this because I certainly don't know the answer, but I struggle with it. And I'll just tell you personally, I struggle with it. I think a lot of people do that have, you know, again, if I was something, I guess I'd be libertarian. I'd be conservative on, you know, taxes. And I kind of like it as a company that has to pay lower taxes because we can hire more people. You know, there's some pretty basic concepts that we have there that, that at least from my perspective, don't have to put me in a political box. But I have kids. I have four kids at home, right? I mean, I live in the in the in the uh, raging blue state of Connecticut, and they're told they're told every day, every day, you know that 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 this this guy's bad, and voting for Democrat is good. And I and I, I my my uh, my second oldest daughter was old enough to ask me the question on on election day. She said, "Mom, you know who did you vote for?" So of course, Laura voted for 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 Biden. And then she asked me, she still didn't know that I don't vote. And she said, because I can't vote, I'm a Canadian green card holder. And she said, Dad, who'd you vote for? And I said, for the objective party. And she, and, and Laura looked at me like, holy shit, man, you, did you really just say that to our kids? And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I started laughing, of course. But, you know, is there a place, and this is my question, it's not a political statement. Is there a place in the fourth turning for the actual truth? I mean the fact-based, data-driven truth that you and I wake up, God willing, two feet on the floor every day. Hedgeye is an independent research provider, has always had that at, at the core of our mission. I don't believe any of these parties. I believe the data. You know, is there a, is there a spot for that, or am I being uh, 2KM about this, too utopian about this, and it just puts me squarely in the minority that I've always been in? No, you know, I... I uh... So I hate to give you a generational answer to your question. <laughs> I'm going to talk for a second about Gen Xers. Um, I find this is the Gen X frustration with ide ideology and, and partisanship in general. Uh, Xers are very pragmatic. You know, I, I want to know the cause and the effect. You know, give me something that I can actually objectively look at and, and I can actually build something. You know, my portfolio. How do I how do I invest? How do I you know, what are the rules? What, what do I actually do to make something happen? Right. And so I think you really have to, particularly in a fourth turning, differentiate between two realms. There's a realm of ideology in which what everyone believes is a self-created truth, right? In other words, it's kind of like, you know, Christianity or any big religion. If everyone believes it, it kind of just <laughs> makes its own truth, right? Because you kind of have to believe it. And, you know, you're right. You understand what I mean, right? Yeah. It's the same way with <clears throat> ideology. I mean, if everyone believes it, well, then that becomes a tool that you can use. You kind of have to go along with it in order to organize people and motivate them. And it, it sort of creates itself. But then you have another realm, which is the fact that you're either right or wrong when it comes to something technological, something with regard to a market bet. Uh, you may be right. You may be wrong. And I think effective leaders know how to operate in both realms. In other words, they know ideology is ideology. We need to kind of, yeah. you know, pander that or encourage it. On the other hand, there's this realm. If I'm going to send, um, uh, you know, if I if I'm going to send, you know, Patton into the Ardennes, or if I'm going to storm ashore at D-Day, or I'm going to decide, you know, not to island hop but do some other kind of strategy in World War II, or I'm going to decide uh, to, um, uh, uh, you know, to actually, you know, hike taxes in 1937, that will have real-world consequences independently of what anyone believes. And I think the secret in life, Keith, see, here we go, Boomer kind of giving an extra <laughs> life advice. The secret in life is to keep those different realms apart. There's yeah. a realm where real things have real effects, and it doesn't matter what you think about it. Right? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to happen that way. It's yeah, a good COVID-19 thing I didn't. Nineteen uh, is a good example. Yeah, it's a good thing I didn't start with my uh, ideology as a Roman Catholic Irish guy. I mean, I didn't go with that. The ideology is absolutely not where I was, and that's that's the point that I was trying to make with Lucy, who's my daughter. On, I'm of the objective party, like I'm my own party. I mean, there's no party for me. I'm just trying to stay on the empirical path. And I, and I do think a lot of people that I talk to about this that engage, and, and they have to be closer to your friend or you never know, they'll just cancel you for life, right? I mean, and like I care. I mean, I, people cancel me all the time. Wow. But, but, what, but, but it's really like, um, it's, it's really an interesting conversation within the conversation that I often find myself having with political partisans. I'm my own party that's spoken like a true Xer. And, and I'll tell you, come the revolution, we won't try to mobilize you. We'll just leave you alone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's, I guess maybe that's why somebody probably gave me the COVID. I just got locked up for 10 days in my own house. Uh, and my wife, and by the way, as a final point, she was probably pretty happy about that too. So uh, uh, anyway, th- thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, you, as always, you know, you're gi- giving us all an education. And I think that that, for, for me, the non-ideologue, that's what I was looking for. So thanks for spending the time. We, we right, certainly appreciate it. This is a pleasure. It. And good luck with your new book. Uh, Neil's next book is coming out in, in 2022, is it? Is it yeah, be? 2022. Uh, we expect I'll, I have to finish it by the end of next year. But uh, we're already doing a lot of work on it. So Awesome. We're, uh, we're all looking forward to that. He's Neil Howe. I'm Keith McCullough. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.